Quick note that the following episode of Canada Land may contain subject matter and language that some people will find offensive. This episode is brought to you by CFUV, a campus and community radio station serving Greater Victoria. You know CFUV. We thank them every episode because they syndicate Canada Land for free to dozens of radio stations across this country. And right now, CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria is hosting the ninth annual Eventide, which is Victoria's free summer music series featuring local artists and a variety of genres. You don't have to be in Victoria to catch these shows Wednesdays throughout the rest of July and August. You can find out more at eventtidevictoria.com. That's eventtidevictoria.com. Or you can just search Eventide Music Series on Facebook. Emily, I'm so nervous about this conversation. I'm I, I'm afraid that I'm going to accidentally say uh, the word. I... I I don't want to say it. I don't need to say. Not it. on my watch, Jesse. All right. <laughs> You're going to be fine. <laughs> You're going to like be you fine. don't. You have to understand my personality flaws. Yeah. Like if you told me that whatever I do in this conversation, I can't say the word butterscotch. Mm-hmm. I would just be dying. I'm just uh, vibrating. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not surprised by this contrarian instinct. I've seen it at work before. Yeah. <laughs> that's like a very noble word to place on something that's more like just a nervous tick or a, a weird compulsion. Um, but I think I'll be okay. Emily Nicolas, a journalist, host of our French language show Detour. Emily, let's just start by telling the story, I guess. Starts in 2020 when a Montreal man, a black man named Ricardo Lemour, goes into Radio Canada, French CBC, to the headquarters of Montreal to be a guest on a radio talk show called 1518, right? That's right. And as you do, you're sitting there listening to the radio show's, like, segment before your segment. Lemur is an artist and a social worker. I think he was probably going on the air to talk about some of that. Mm-hmm. But while he's waiting, he catches the preceding segment. He's hearing what everybody who's listening to Radio Canada is hearing. What does he hear? Uh, he hears the host, Annie Desrochers, speak to one of her collaborators, Simon Jodoin, and they're discussing how a professor at Concordia University is catching some backlash for using uh, the N-word in class. And she was using the N-word in class because she was discussing the infamous book uh, by Pierre Vallière, which I think the polite way to frame it would be uh, white Negroes of America. Mm -hmm. And so that's the context in which this discussion was taking place. I think the N-word was said three times in French and one time in English with the hard ER during that discussion that Ricardo was listening before coming on the air himself. So there's a a black man listening to the public radio and he hears the N-word four times going out live before his segment where he's going to come on and talk about other stuff. Yeah, that's right. And he gets through the segment, but then he files a complaint. Yeah. So he first sends just an email to the show itself saying basically what the f*** 
And then I think the show itself says we didn't do anything wrong. And so then after that, he files a formal complaint to the Radio Canada's ombudsman. What does the ombudsman say? The ombudsman says, you know, we follow journalistic standards and there's nothing to see here, basically. So after that happens, he takes it a step further and then complains to the CRTC itself. And what does the CRTC say? The CRTC says a whole bunch of things, and that decision took a really long time to take. So we're talking about the segment that was happening in 2020, and the decision just dropped at the end of June this year. So after the CRTC took its sweet time, the majority decision was that it's okay to say the N-word, but you should be careful how many times you use it. Just be careful with the word. Maybe have some sort of warning before and basically suggest Radio Canada to have some sort of a policy or some steps that they could take to kind of know how to handle that in the future. And it'd be great as well if you could apologize to the listener that filed a complaint. And then there's the minority decisions. There's two of them. Some of the arguments are... The CRTC is overstepping its boundary. It's stepping out of line by just even getting disinvolved in some of the journalistic decisions that Radio Canada is making. And they're also saying that the N-word doesn't have the same weight in French and in English and that it's basically a a form of um, not understanding French specificities. So... There's a split between those at the CRTC who say, yes, you can use this word, but maybe just don't use it so much and be careful about how much you use it and apologize to the person you offended with this. And then the contradictory opinion, which is we shouldn't be saying anything about what you can and can't say. That's right. And that's the CRTC's ruling. All of that together is the CRTC's response. And what happens next? What happens next is that What the CRTC actually says gets translated as the CRTC doesn't want you to use the N-word anymore in any context. And that's censorship. And we need to stand up against the CRTC because the CRTC wants to censor everyone. And so that interpretation of the CRTC's decision is basically what is said in a lot of different opinion pieces that are being published, including... One of them published by over 50 headliners from Radio Canada. So, you know, the news anchors, the TV hosts, radio hosts, um, many of them who are very big names in Quebec. And then there's another op-ed that's signed by people who are also very big media personalities in Quebec, but are not necessarily Radio Canada's uh, employees. And you have also some worried... Uh, pieces that come out of former Radio Canada ombudsman and a former CRTC person as well. So just a whole bunch of uh, heavyweight media folks saying that, you know, this is over the line. The FPGQ, which is the body representing journalists in Quebec, also pushes back against the CRTC decision. So this is like a chorus of disapproval from everybody who can legitimately say that they represent really the media, civil society, these are Radio Canada former executives, the former ombudsman, this is all the journalists, celebrity journalists, hosts, and the association representing journalists all in unison saying, F- off CRTC, don't tell us that we can't use the N-word. Yeah, exactly. And it becomes a, a freedom of expression thing, for sure, and a freedom of press thing. And the CBC appeals the CRTC's decision. So 
on the 13th, CBC Radio-Canada finally publishes their official answers to that. There's a press release that comes out. They're saying that they've heard basically all that has been said, including from some of their employees, including racialized employees, so people who haven't spoke out in the public because, yeah, as, as we were saying, there's a lot of people that, that came out in the media. People who did not utter a word is basically everybody that's like younger, junior and or racialized. Very few people who uh, within Radio-Canada who were not part of the headliners basically actually said a peep in public. So basically, CBC says in its news release that it's heard from its own employees, including racialized employees, and that it's going to apologize to the plaintiff for its use of the N-word. It's going to issue a warning for uh, the segment that's still going to be online in uh, the future. And it insists that it's not doing that because the CRTC told them to. It's doing that because they know it's the right thing to do. And they're going to appeal the CRTC decision on basically the idea that they don't think the CRTC should have jurisdiction over that kind of stuff. And that if they feel like the CRTC overstepped its mandate, basically just by issuing that decision. So that sounds like a lot of words to try to uh, ameliorate blowback from their own employees. But if we look at the history of the CBC's response to Lemoore's complaint about the repeated use of the N-word in both languages, we have the show saying we did nothing wrong. We have the ombudsman saying we did nothing wrong. And when the CRTC suggests, oh, maybe you shouldn't have done that and you should apologize, we have the CBC appealing that decision. Yeah, that's right. So it's very complicated, let's put it this way. Well, it is and it isn't because the obvious parallel is the case of Wendy Mesley, who was taken off the air from CBC television in English because she said the N-word at work off the air mm -hmm. in at least two production meetings. And in one of those meetings, it was also when she was reading out the title of that book. Mm -hmm. Like it's an exact parallel, except her case was far less egregious because she didn't say it on the air. And she was taken off the air. And then months after that plays out, we learn that in... French Canada, Radio Canada, French CBC, the repercussions for it being said four times, including by the host, is that the show thinks it's okay, the ombudsman thinks it's okay, and the CBC is appealing the CRTC's ruling that it might not have been okay. And the CRTC says, it's okay to say it. Mm -hmm. Just be careful with how many times you repeat it and please issue a warning. Before we talk about anything else, and there's so much more to talk about, how do we parse that glaring discrepancy, contradiction, hypocrisy that what was absolutely not acceptable on English CBC mm -hmm. on or off the air is acceptable and defensible and persistent again and again and again on the air when it's French CBC? That's the thousand dollar question in the sense that that's creating even debates within French-speaking journalists. But basically, the answer is that Radio-Canada and CBC are two different things. But I'd be completely hypocritical myself that it's not to mention that it's also creating debates within Francophone Black people themselves. 
the reason you're asking this is like, why is this discrepancy is for the N-word specifically? And we can go into that for sure. And so the excuse for why one would have different rules than the other is that, that like two solitudes, two different CBCs. That's right. I guess that's one excuse or reason or, or, or explanation. How about the other one that was offered? I mean, it's kind of moot because, as you say, they used the English N-word with the hard E-R. So it's a bit it's a bit of a red herring maybe. But should we explore? Is it worth exploring? Like, is it true that the N-word is – like, does it mean something different in French? Okay. So there's different wor- versions of the word in English. There's the hard E-R that's never used in a non-racist way. And then there's the word that finishes with an A that's used in hip hop a lot that a lot of black people use themselves. And that's the one that it's not okay to say if you're white, but it's up to debate if you're a black person, if you're, if you're going to use it or not. In French, there's not that duality between the A and the ER. So it's just that one word. Um, and that creates a, a, a different conversation. Um, there's a lot of... Black authors, especially in the 60s and 70s, and before that, in the 40s and 50s, that created this literary movement, the Negritude movement, Aimé Césaire, uh, Léopold Senghor, and they've used the word like a lot, and they use it as a way to basically reclaim their humanity, and it's a way to basically talk about the specific Black way of being a human being, the, the, the specific Black human condition. And there's a lot of folks in Quebec who are black folks in Quebec who are of Haitian background. And in Haitian Creole, the word for guy, a bloke, or just a person is also, and I'm going to say it in Creole, just neg. And that's just a way to say, oh, he's a nice dude. And you can also say that even for a white person. You say he's a, a cool dude. You, you would say that and you, you would use a version of the N-word to say that in Haitian Creole. And that just comes from Haitian history and how basically we just decided that that word was thrown at us as an insult, but we just made it a synonym for basically all human beings. And that there's also a lot of power in reclaiming that. So I think it's interesting to have those kind of conversations about the different lives, let's put it this way, of, of the word. But there's ways in which the word has been used in French Canadian history with the hard ER and then translated into the French word. But Pierre Vallière himself, when he wrote the title of the book, in this book himself, he says, when I thought of this book, I was thinking about the word in English with the hard ER. And if in the English translation, that's how it's translated. Mm -hmm. And he uses it as a way to basically equate the experience of African-Americans with white French Canadians and say that they're both oppressed. So there's also like that use of the word that also has created a lot of controversy. We're going to have a really interesting conversation about language and all of the different cultural and and artistic ways and how it's different if one person's saying it than another and it's different in Creole. But but like in both these cases, the Wendy Mesley case and the more recent case, they were referring to that book. And the point of that title is to invoke the most harmful racial slur possible because the point that that title was making was look at how oppressed French Canadians are. They are so oppressed that they're essentially the white N-words of America. That's right. I've heard that device before. There's an Elvis Costello song called Oliver's Army where the Irish are referred to uh, the same way as white N-words like Mm -hmm. that. How do I convey to you how oppressed we are? We might as well be N-words the way they're treating us. Like that's how it's being used there, right? That's correct. And that could be the right moment to talk about why that metaphor became such a big deal in 
the history of Quebec's ideas and why people are holding on to it so much and feeling like their freedom of expression is under attack when we, some people, including myself, has been telling them this metaphor has been bullshit from the start. And it's not just that you should not be saying the title. It's just that the book itself says something that is pure Well, let's get there. And maybe we'll start, like, I'll present to you, I think, what journalists and others, uh, academics, have used as the rationale for why they must say this. But it's so much, mm-hmm. there's so much more I understand to this than that. And I, I think that what a Wendy Mesley or, or anybody else uh, has invoked is to say, this is a seminal text in the history of the nationalist and separatist movement. It is, which it is, yes. Which, which, which it is, and and this is a place for ideas and discussion, and history is included in that. And we try to be specific about things, uh, and we don't talk like like in code words. Uh, we don't talk like children. Mm-hmm. And I'm not agreeing with the book, and I'm not calling anybody any name. But how can we talk about the history of separatism, uh, or the history of nationalism in Quebec, without telling you one of the books that this movement and this ideology was based upon? Yeah, and that's an argument that creates a lot of division, even within the Black Francophones community in Quebec. There's a spectrum of opinions on this. There's people who just wouldn't want, just like basically we do in English, just don't want the word to be used ever. And there's people who are like, yeah, let's use the word to name titles of the books. And then there's people who are like, no words should be banned ever. And if I want to uh, write a column with like the N-word a thousand times written in it, um, that's fine because that's my freedom of expression. So there's there's just a whole spectrum of opinion there. And the debate has been messy in Quebec because you have very prominent Black folks, including Daniel Laferriere, who wrote a book called, and I'm going to also just adapt the, the title, How to Make Love to a Negro Without Getting Tired in the 70s, the book that made him his breakthrough career. He's now a member of the French Academy of all places, an immortal, as we say. And he came out the last time this debate was around to say, of course, we should be able to say the word on the air. And the people, the black people in Quebec who are saying we should not are just oversensitive children. I'm paraphrasing. He didn't say it like that, but this is basically what he meant. So that context obviously just creates a whole mess for a lot of white folks who are trying to figure out where they should stand on this. They're just listening to a whole bunch of different voices from different black people, and they just don't know where to stand. But to the extent that invoking this simply as like a a, a historical text that's part of the story of separatism, there's a very simple idea communicated by the title that uh, there was this uh, Mm -hmm. breakthrough book that that equated the French-Canadian experience to the American black experience in in a very straightforward and, you know, vulgar but emphatic way. And uh, that's sort of where our understanding of this book ends. That sort of, I think the word you used was flattens the true story of that book can you talk a bit about that? Well, I think I'm just going to read Pierre Vallière to you. The very first page of his book, and I'm reading the French text. I'm just going to self-translate as I go. And whenever there'd be a DN word with the ard, uh, ER, I'm going to use Negro instead. So being a Negro is not to be a man in America, but to be the slave of someone else. For the rich white person, the Negro is basically a not even a real man. 
even poor white people consider the, the Negro as inferior to them. They say, work hard like a Negro, smell bad like a Negro, be dangerous like a Negro, being ignorant like a Negro. Very often, they don't even know that they are themselves Negroes, slaves, and white Negroes. The white racism hides that reality from them and uh, gives them the occasion to basically despise an inferior, to crush it mentally, and to even pity it. But uh, the poor white folks who despise uh, the black people are themselves doubly Negroes because they have a one other step of alienation, which is that racism that instead of liberating them, that racism just imprisons them in some hates uh, and paralyzes them, uh, basically uh, in the fear that one day they will have to uh, affront black people in a civil war. So basically what he's saying is that not only uh, poor white people are Negroes, but they're even more Negroes than real Negroes <laughs> because they are Negroes that don't know that they're Negroes themselves. So that's basically his point. And he says that in Quebec, there is no black problem. He says that. Mm -hmm. So he's basically saying that there is no black history in Quebec. And then he adds a footnote later on saying, well, that's not true anymore. And he says that the real oppressed people in Quebec are the white French Canadian. And he goes on to talk about French Canadians as being an exploited class and talk about basically the whole essay is about the working class and how they're being crushed by capitalism uh, in Quebec and British imperialism. And he, he just, as I was saying earlier, he just flattens that and makes a straight line between the conditions of African-Americans and the conditions of white working class French Canadians. And he does that while he's writing this book in prison in New York, because he's in prison for, uh, he was accused of a murder, actually, <laughs> of a manslaughter. And he's in prison for 13 months. And while he's in prison, he meets with Black Panther Party members who are in prison when there. There's a lot of African-Americans around him. And while he's being surrounded by African-Americans, he writes this book. And I just want to say that as somebody who's both of Haitian and French Canadian descent, everything in what I've just read or explained makes me want to scream and flip tables and just punch some holes in the walls around me. Uh, because everything in that is completely, completely wrong. I mean, there's, of course, a lot of class exploitation that happened to French Canadians. And Pierre Vallière was a revolutionary. He was a member of the Front Libération Nationale, the FLQ. He was basically a socialist, communist-ish, and he wanted to make a working class revolution. But to flatten black experience to just people who were exploited for their labor just ignores everything about what the history of slavery and taking people from Africa to America was actually like. He says, I'm quoting him again, that French Canadians, were they not just like black Americans imported to serve as cheap labor in the new world? The only thing that differentiates them the color of their skin, and their continent of origin. So basically, that's his theory. And that's why I think the book is wrong, not just the title. The idea behind the book is wrong. However, 
the book has had such an important life in Quebec. There's still a lot of people, especially in older generations, who hold on to that idea today, which makes it very, very hard to talk about Black experience in Quebec historically and today because so many people still hold on to this idea. And the reason it's so hard to say this book is wrong without being called a censor is that the book itself was censored when it was first published in uh, 1968. Mm -hmm. The book was censored because Pierre Vallière was a person in prison, a member of the FLQ. This is just two years before the October crisis. The government was already cracking down on FLQ member. The essays goes on to basically call for uh, people to raise in arms. Basically a working class revolution, just like you've seen in other places around the world at that time. So the book was banned. And it was still a bestseller in the sense that people were carrying illegal copies of the book and selling them you know, under the mantle. That's what happened to the life of the book itself. So that's why when you're saying you should not say the title of the book... A lot of Quebecers go back to that time when the book was banned itself and they're like, you're the new kind of censor and you're trying to censor Pierre Vallière. You are not the first person to, who is trying to censor Pierre Vallière. You will not be the last and you're not going to stand and we're going to crush you like we've crushed the other censors before. I get it. That helps so much. It's a sacred text. It's the third rail and the idea of any level of censorship or any limitation on that would be perceived as a continuation of that first censorship. But, of course, nobody was censoring the book when it came out in 68 because they were concerned about the harms on black people. No, no. It was because he was a subversive radical. Exactly. And then two years later, everybody associated with his organization was just sent to prison by Pierre Trudeau. So there's a real history there as well, for sure. So... In 68, when he wrote it, I can only imagine that, based on what you just read and explained, he knew very little about the black experience and about black people, and he was really using the word and the black American experience as a rhetorical device, that here's a quick and easy way to convey to people the worst abject misery and oppression is to be like those people. But that's not the point of view that he maintained his whole life. And I just read a piece by Tula Germanis in Cult Montreal. Mm -hmm. uh, I just want to read a little bit of this to you. In his later years, Pierre Vallier worried that Quebec ethno-nationalism could degenerate into a xenophobic form of populism. His thought process evolved considerably over the years. As a fierce anti-colonialist, he did not like what he saw happening to Quebec's nationalist movement and denounced politicians more concerned with maintaining their power than fighting for people's rights. He openly criticized the movement of the 90s, and in a 1994 preface to his book, he made it clear that there would be no question of social revolution in this nationalist conception of sovereignty. He advocated for a pluralist, plurilingual, pluricultural Quebec that would give equal rights to all citizens of Quebec. That is correct. That is basically a summary of what he says and a preface that he adds to the book in 94. Pierre Vallière dies in 98. So in 94, just a year before the referendum, he writes that. He's basically a person that was already skeptical 
of the Parti Québécois itself when it got created. He was very much, as I was saying, that the, his use of an N-word was a very clumsy, wrong way to describe his very real struggle or commitment to the working class and how they were being exploited by capitalism and British imperialism in Canada. And that commitment stays true over the years. And basically when the Parti Québécois gets created, he becomes incredibly critical. He joins it, but still becoming incredibly critical of René Lévesque himself and everybody that he calls basically the bourgeois elites of nationalism. And he criticized this idea that, you know, just creating a strong independent state is going to lead to any kind of liberation. He basically wants a revolution, not just, you know, the same structures that you have within Canada, but just call it Quebec and make it smaller. And so he spends his life criticizing people who want to do that. And he's saying that those people are just trying to do a little bit what Maurice Duplessis had been doing with the Union Nationale, just like appeal to people's xenophobic instinct. He says that nationalism in Quebec or, or that revolution in Quebec should not just come from the French-Canadian majority. He says that it should be an alliance that comes with all people, including Anglophones, including Indigenous peoples, uh, including Black folks, Asian folks, and that basically all of them need to come together have some sort of a general assembly when they decide what they want to do next. So that's basically his his view. So he just slams on Jacques Parizeau. He slams on Lucien Bouchard. He he just he was very much an enemy of all of those generation of more conservative you know nationalists. And it's really interesting that today after his death, you have the heirs of such you know conservative nationalists who are now defending him because they want to defend their right to say the N-word, which in many ways has nothing to do with a lot of the other ideas he had to say. And, you know, it's always going to be a, a hypothetical question, but I do think that with the kind of commitment that he had to social justice, if he had lived long enough to hear, now that we're kind of more visible in Quebec media, just how some black people were just really hurt by his metaphorical use, just how much it's made it so much harder for us to talk about the black conditions. I'm going to use his word, the black problem in Quebec, just because he basically stepped over us to make his point. I think part of me would be hopeful that it's a point that he would be able to get himself and be like, you know what, this wasn't my smartest move. I could have made my point differently and it, the point would have been as strong. I mean, I guess language does change and meanings change and context changes. Mm -hmm. And it, it, it was an incredibly effective title to convey his message at the time. Of course. But he evolved and he changed. And it's so interesting to read, in, again, in this Cult Montreal piece that he ultimately believed that an ethno-nationalist Quebec, a Quebec that's hostile to immigrants, did not deserve to survive. That's very much his words. Yeah. Emily, I am getting a profound sense of deja vu. Hey, that's also French. Uh, in, in discussing this with you, because <laughs> we had this conversation before when the blackface debate about whether blackface means the same thing in Quebec as elsewhere. Mm -hmm. And the right, don't tell us that your your blackface is like our blackface. This is just another imperialistic act of oppression from English Canada. I think it was in that conversation where you struck me with an analogy that just like just reverberated with just how accurately it conveyed everything that essentially... 
it always seems to, uh, to paraphrase you, boil down to like a hockey fight between English Canada and French Canada, between the Maple Leafs and the Habs, where black people are the puck. Mm-hmm. That's very much what seems to be going on with Radio Canada and the CRTC, to be honest, for sure. It seems that the same thing that all of those Quebec journalists and there was a senator in, in one of those open letters, they all got together and they said, look, this isn't about black people, regardless of what was said. It doesn't matter what was said. Who the f*** are you to tell us that we can't say it? And then that seems to be the same thing that Radio Canada, CBC, is now saying to the CRTC. Yeah, we agree with you. We apologize for that. Don't worry about using the word. We're, we'll, we'll try not to use it again. And we're, we're sorry we said it. But who the f*** are you to tell us that we can't call these people that or use that word? Mm-hmm. All of these debates are between people who are not implicated by that word. Yeah. So I'll start by saying that this is the classic psychology of just Quebec versus Ottawa stuff. You have this knee-jerk reflex of it's important that we have our own conversations amongst ourselves and don't tell us what to do. And this is why I think, you know, the news release that CBC Radio Canada got out is so interesting that they said we're doing it because we know it's the right thing to do. We're not doing it because the CRTC told us to. Um, they say that knowing very well that the that complaint escalated because they didn't take care of it internally. Well, in fact, they were defiant. They, they supported the use exactly. at, at two levels Exactly. Internally. But they say that just because that's the only way to save face and to appease everyone. Uh, because if they don't say that and they, they say like Razo Canada obeys to an Ottawa-based organizations, there's a lot of people that it's going to piss off and just going to make the social climate even worse. It was the same thing that happened back when Radio Canada was still doing some blackface in some of its comedy shows. Some of the complaints escalated to the CRTC. The CRTC blamed Radio Canada for doing it. There were a lot of ruffle feathers because of that. A lot of people were disgruntled and eventually they stopped doing it. But you had to also have that conversation internally and let people come to their own conclusions. Um, because otherwise it works in the sense that maybe you have a blame But it doesn't work in a sense that just people just harden on their position. They just feel like they're being censored. They're being oppressed by Ottawa for just being different. And in some ways, appealing to Ottawa-based uh, institutions just makes the social climate even worse. Um, and that applies to basically everything. That's why I always, always critical as well of people even on Build 21 just saying Ottawa should get involved. And not understanding what the repercussions of doing that directly would have been. Um, it's, it's because it's a classic thing. It always happens regardless of what the thing is about. There will be people who are like, yeah, maybe we should not say it less. But they're going to be saying it even more just to make a point that they don't have to obey Ottawa. To perform defiance to the, 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 those who would tell them what. And, and exactly. If there's collateral damage or somebody gets hurt in the spray of that, that, that's who cares. Exactly. And yet if we're talking about how egregious it is that this is this like endless debate between white people um, in which black people are used as, as, as a puck, as a tool, that would suggest, okay, this should be a debate in which black people are included or centered or, or pr But primary. But it's, it's so dangerous. It's so dangerous, Jesse. So talk about that because you had a conversation with Vanessa Destiné on our French show, uh, Detour, And, okay, so this is different than what has been playing out in the Quebec media. We have two black voices weighing in on this, but it was interesting, once it was translated for me, to learn that Vanessa expressed just an exasperation uh, in that conversation. Mm -hmm. that, that, damn, I'm just so tired, uh, I, I, I think is what she said. 
Uh, it wasn't your doing that this became a controversy. It is your job to process mm-hmm. these things. You've been writing about this, and you've been communicating in English and in French. And I want to know, like, how is it different when you're debating and discussing this in French than in English? When I'm debating this in English, I need to explain who Pierre Vallière is. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, it's it's uh, what I what needs to be explicited is completely different. I need to explain, you know, as I was saying, like the kind of divisions that exists uh, or the history of the word in French and literature and whatnot and the nuances of that. I don't have to do that in French as much. I do have to explain more in French how the N-word is hurtful, period. Because sometimes people are hold on to their grand literary debate and they don't realize how many children are being thrown the N-word at in classrooms and schools to this day and what's the impact it has on a kid that is on the back seat of their parents' car and the radio's on and they hear the N-word repeatedly and they don't care if it's the title of a book. They don't know that they're maybe maybe four or five years old. They're still going to ask their parents, why is the person on their radio saying the N-word over? Like, what's that about mom, dad? And I think that part of the conversation, the fact that when hosts and people, journalists think of the public with a capital P, that like black families are part of the public and we're here and we're listening to you guys. That's something that somehow is still still needs to be said, but it's happening while either minimizing or completely ignoring or dismissing the real violence of the word and how it's still being used in Quebec society to crush uh, black people, and especially black children down all the time. And it's so easy, I think, for them to dissociate the two conversations because they don't live it. But I think that's the difference with black people having a voice in those debates is that when I talk about Pierre Valère and whatnot, I'm still the same person that has experienced the word not in an intellectual, lofty, metaphorical way mm-hmm. as a kid. So I know the violence of it in my skin, and that makes a difference in the kind of thinking that I have. And I think that point about the violence of the word has been made more in English because of you know the ER variant that just no black person usually wants to reclaim for themselves ever, even in art. And there is also a strong history of denial of, first of all, slavery, but also racism in French Canadian society that led Pierre Vallière to be so ill-informed that he thought that there wasn't a black problem in Quebec. But it's also an issue, more broadly speaking, in francophonie as well, where France itself, there's just mainstream thought. Emmanuel Macron will say things sometimes about, you know, just trying to minimize the damage French colonialism had, which makes it that people have a perception that the N-word is not as violent in French, but it's because there is, in many parts of the Francophonie, a difficulty to look at French colonialism and what it did, and which is obviously something that's infuriating to witness as a Haitian. But that's, I think, some of the, the issue there. It's like displacing the violence of racism on American slavery and British colonialism and not looking at your own history. And I would get why it's so hard for Pierre Vallière's generation to do and for so many Quebec nationalists that closely follow him to do. They're just so invested in criticizing British injustice that they forgot about the French part. 
and making that shift in Quebec society to look at the French part of things and how yourself can embody those institutions that you've been criticizing when they were happening to you in English. It's a mental shift that is very hard to do, much easier to do with younger generations. There's a great cultural gap there, but nationalist settlers in Quebec have a really hard time understanding their own participation in structures of oppression. And that's, I guess, the specificity of why it's so hard to be having those debates sometime and why it's also so dangerous <laughs> to be taking part in them as a Black francophone, actually, because it's like you're there as a person who experienced the violence of the word, but in the way you're being read, you can get conflated as a defendant of British imperialism and English, you know, supremacy, which makes no sense at all. But that's just the mental categories that are available to people. And so because of that, because they think they're punching up when they're punching you, they don't hold their punches. That is your Canada Land. If you'd like to hear more from today's guest, Emily Nicolas, you can listen to her podcast that we publish. That is Canada Land's French podcast, Detour. You can email me at jesse at canadaland.com. I read everything that you send. We're on Twitter at Canada Land. Our website is canadaland.com. This episode was produced with help from Jonathan Goldsby. Tristan Capicione is our audio editor and technical producer. Our senior producer is Sarah Larniuk. Kieran Oudshorn is our managing editor. I'm your host, Jesse Brown. Theme music is by So Called. Syndication is handled by CFUV, 101.9 FM in Victoria. You can visit them online at cfuv.ca. Hi there. You just heard Canada Land, the show where I'm typically joined by a different guest each week for a long feature interview. What you're going to hear next is Canada Land Shortcuts, a topical news show where I'm joined by a different co-host each week and we talk about the media's coverage of various stories in the news right now. Wait for it. Vas Bedner. Executive Director of the Master of Public Policy Program in Digital Society at McMaster University. Hello. Hey. That's today on the show. They put reporters in cages, don't they? How to avoid being a tool when covering politicians who act like tools. The Pierre Polyev edition. Welcome to Shortcuts, where we're going to talk about the news. Fast, we duly note stories that need to be talked about more than perhaps they have. I'm going to start a story that does not need more exposure was this terrifying story in the Tai that went viral. Get ready for the forever plague. Holy shit. Public health officials' COVID complacency has opened the door to new illnesses and devastating long-term damage just when you thought you were out. This is a story that went wide around the world, actually, and it had the most terrifying picture. Here's how Slate put it. This week, a very scary-sounding article went viral. Get ready for the forever plague. Accompanied by a picture of an equally scary crow-faced plague doctor in a hoodie. Quoting from the piece, just one infection can destabilize your immune system and age it by 10 years. The journalist wrote, 
As a consequence, it is now possible to be reinfected with one of Omicron's variants every two to three weeks, and each reinfection confers no immunity. So you get a new COVID every three weeks, and every time you do, your immune system <laughs> dies by 10 years. And Slate writes, let's get this out of the way. None of that is true. And this piece was excoriated. It was taken apart piece by piece by piece. It is scaremongering with bits of truth. There's still a lot to be concerned about with uh, this ongoing pandemic. But no, this the forever plague, as described by this scary article, is false. Like a lot of these stories that go viral, the scary story was shared much more widely than the blowback and certainly more widely than... What I'm going to duly note is the author of the piece, Andrew Nikiforic, ran a, not a mea culpa, a response. He followed up and he was defiant. And that's what I want to duly note. Here's what he wrote in the Tai after he just got slammed all around the world. He writes, as a journalist, my job is not to sugarcoat reality, to cheerlead for the status quo or to defend the powerful. My responsibility is to put emerging trends on everybody's radar. And my latest article, Get Ready for the Forever Plague, did just that. All right, buddy. Uh, good for you. Duly noted. Vass, what would you like to duly note? I would like to duly note a very small article that appeared in the Globe and Mail entitled Resolute Forest Producer Acquired by Paper Excellence in $2.7 Billion Deal. I think that investment reporting is a really cool place to learn about competition. There was this quote, this speaks to the competitiveness and attractiveness of Canada's forestry sector. And I couple that with something Ken White wrote, our book's about to disappear. Mm -hmm. So the price of paper is going up. This has implications for publishers of all sizes, but especially small independent publishers that we see eroding, especially in Canada. And there's another major merger that Canada might be reviewing, and that's the Penguin Random House Simon & Schuster merger. So just to bring it, you know, to competition and books and price, there are these massive knock-on effects when we allow consolidation across supply chains as well that then hurt everyday Canadians if you want to buy a book, if you're still buying books. Well, I guess the consolidation of every single book publisher into one means when it becomes too expensive to publish books anymore, that'll only hurt one company. Yay. Duly noted. Some Canadian politicians have been getting closer with the far right, and experts are getting concerned. Experts are concerned. They're getting concerned. So that's a new story from global reporter Rachel Gilmore. The experts are getting concerned. The Canadian politicians have been getting closer with the far right. That was the TikTok version of a story that's become really controversial, Vass. And if I lay out the order of events here, it seems that what happened was Rachel Gilmore was working on a story about stuff that happened a while ago, like the fact that Pierre Polyev has this weird, hazy, he won't tell you exactly how much support for Freedom Convoy people is, of course, a months old story. But it's one of these weird things where you can almost kind of like decide when a news story happens by just like, all right, I found some experts who are concerned. So like we'll we'll hinge this story on the, the concern of these experts. And then you do your thing as a reporter and you ask Pierre Polyev for comment on this concern. And the questions that got sent included questions to the Polyev team. Does Mr. Polyev feel he has a responsibility to distance himself from movements that call for actions that violate Canadian law and principles of our democracy? Does Mr. Polyev condemn white supremacy? 
And the Polyev team, or Polyev himself, looked at these questions and I guess concluded that there's not much to be gained by answering them the way a politician traditionally would and say, of, of course, I condemn white supremacy, but blah, 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 blah. That's a position that I guess they felt was not politically advantageous. And instead, they leveraged these questions into kind of like publicly flaming global news. And Polyev didn't single out Rachel Gilmore. They're, they're actually quite shrewd in how they do things. But he went on Twitter and said, no wonder trust in the media is at an all-time low. One of Global News' so-called journalists decided to smear me and thousands of other Canadians because we criticized the federal government's unscientific and discriminatory vaccine mandates. Here's my campaign's response to this attack, and then posted like this full statement of how the fix was in with this piece. The next chapter of this narrative is that predictable elements of Twitter were appalled that this is how a politician would respond to a journalist just doing their job. And of course, journalists were upset and concerned for Rachel Gilmore being attacked by Pierre Polyev fans, and fair enough, I believe she was. But there were also a number of supportive comments for Rachel Gilmore from politicians on the other side of things. Jagmeet Singh, Rachel Gilmore is a professional and objective journalist who, to the ire of the extreme right, is doing her job. So he stands up for Rachel Gilmore, but like gets to kind of take a swipe at Parapolyev and define him as extreme right. Jerry Butts, no longer with the PMO, but you know, with the PMO, tweets, for the it can't happen here crowd, do you think Polyev sent this before or after his fundraiser hosted for him by a guy who advocates hanging environmentalists for treason? We also saw Bob Ray, liberal emeritus, take a stand for Rachel Gilmore. And essentially what you had was I stand with Rachel Gilmore, liberals and NDP, and Rachel Gilmore is a hack or all kinds of terrible words I won't describe, conservative Polyev fans. And this one reporter in this one news organization very quickly got politicized. I guess what I want to say about that is we have to smarten up as reporters, as journalists, when we're thinking about a story like, like that story. And I'm not going to say like, oh, we shouldn't run stories like that. But like, I think that newsreaders are correct to be skeptical of these experts agree story because it is a way that reporters can essentially take what probably should be an analysis piece where, you know, like, well, who's concerned about the ties between Polyev and the far right? Maybe you are, and maybe you should write an opinion piece about that. But to present it as news because experts are concerned is something that I think people are kind of getting hip to. And it fuels a certain distrust of media. But more than that, more than that, this condemnation of Polyev for not just answering the questions. That's what a lot of people said. Why don't you just answer the questions? Like, let's not kid ourselves that politicians ever answered reporters' questions because of principle, you know, because they respected the role of reporters. That's not why reporters got replies. Like, what would happen before would be that Polyev's team would look at this and they would say, okay, this is obviously going to be a negative story about us. So what do we do here? Do we ignore the specific questions and just provide a statement to the reporter? Or do we go to a different news source that's going to be friendlier and uh, try to deal with it that way? So at least we can say, no, we, we, we answered questions, but you know, we don't, we can't answer every question. There was a playbook and that playbook has changed because we don't have power anymore. I mean, the reason they answered our questions is because we had power. We are more useful to Polyev as a punching bag, as a partisan mechanism, as a tool, than we are as 
a power vector that has to be massaged and managed and dealt with because the press has power to define you and to describe you that you don't have. And I'm specifically saying when I say we have to like recognize which playbook he's playing from, he's playing from the Trump playbook. I'm not saying that he's Trump, but we saw how Trump put reporters in cages at his events for their own protection and then said to his crowds, the lying media, and they would ask him questions and he would use those questions to prove just how in the tank and biased the media was. And he succeeded in, A, making it incredibly difficult to be a reporter and do the reporter's job. But also, reporters got their backs up and started, like, fighting back against Trump in a way that was like – and then people on the other side of the political spectrum started to embrace those reporters and say, I defend journalists' rights. And very quickly, you had, like, reporting and journalism – like, the, the allegation that they were in the tank for the left became true. Right. You know, like, they actually became in a fight against Trump in partnership with Democrats. And we can – pretend that we've seen that in Canada before, Kevin O'Leary or Kelly Leach, or, but we haven't seen a serious candidate who actually might win play from that playbook. And I think we just have to, like, now is the time to realize that the rules have changed. So it sounds like the media might have trouble holding Pierre to account because that seemed like, what was the expectation there with those questions, right? Obviously, that bargain has eroded in terms of politicians answering consistently or even factually, right? Of course, as you pointed out, often political communication is not really saying anything, the art of not saying anything. Back to our Rogers friend with the lanyard who was cut off. He yeah, maybe wasn't trade enough. the question that you wish you were asked. Exactly. Like, those are the old tricks. Now, it's the, now you can just lie, you know? Yeah. And to your point about analysis, I mean, my read of that piece, I was really intrigued by a smaller point in that article, which seemed to be that we have an assumption if a politician meets with someone, they endorse them. And Pierre played with that in his statement, which I did read, to sort of say, well, I've met with Justin Trudeau before, but it doesn't mean that, you know, we're BFFs or something. Yeah, good point, Vass. And and here's, I'll read from the Polyev statement where they talk about that. For example, Mr. Polyev has met with Justin Trudeau. This does not make Mr. Polyev responsible for Trudeau's many racist outbursts, including dressing up in racist costumes and mistreating visible minorities in his own party. He can flip this because he's thought this through, because that's his job. That could be interesting for us to explore more as Canadians. Are there groups or people or individuals that should not be heard, you know, in the flesh by anyone? And then if that is our expectation, you know, is that democratic? Or are we implicitly arguing for the icing out of some subset of the population that they should never be able to express their views, however kind of odious or polarizing they might be? Because if you meet with them, you endorse them. Like you and I have met now. You don't necessarily endorse every idea I've ever written and things like that, right? I mean, you might, actually. Polyev is a shrewd mother****er. And he can anticipate these debates and these moves and how it's going to play out. And he was very purposeful and strategic with the extent to which he associated himself with those people. And how strongly he hit back when asked. Exactly. And he can anticipate the questions. You always want to get your opponent in a situation where they're revealing their bias or seem to be revealing their bias by drawing these conclusions. Like, mm. how dare you walk with that person? And Polyev can very easily take the position of like, hey, our prime minister is the guy who says that anybody against me is a racist and, and deplorable. I talk to Canadians. I'm walking with Canadians. You want to say that that makes me an X, Y, or Z? Well, you're just showing me that you're in the tank, blah, blah, blah. Like, I'm not going to call the guy a genius, you know, because this stuff is not that complicated. So I don't know, Vess. I say all these things 
in like the dog days of summer with an eye towards all of the coverage to come, maybe it's a time to look at the playbook and like try to figure out what we're doing. Or write a new playbook. Vast, that is Shortcuts this week. Thank you so much. Thank you for coming into the studio. It's so nice to have a co-host in person. It's great to see the other person you're speaking to when you record something. Thanks for having me. We're on Twitter at CanadaLand. I can be emailed at jesse at CanadaLand.com, and I read everything that you send me. Vast Bedner, where can people find you? I'm on Twitter at Vast B, and I write regs to riches uh, with the number two in the URL. Prince Syntax. Check it out. Regs to Riches. It's worth your time. This episode is produced by Aviva Lassard with additional production by Tristan Capicione. Our managing editor is Kieran Oudshorn. Our theme music is by So Called. Syndication is by CFUV, 101.9 FM in Victoria. Visit them online at cfuv.ca. Mm-hmm.